Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madame Cronin, and today we're going to do something special. We're going to explore a meta topic, how to author your own reality and control the future. The inspiration for this episode was actually a tweet from Naval Ravikant. He tweeted that the only real test of intelligence is if you get what you want out of life. And this got me thinking, what determines whether or not we get what we want out of life? A big part, in my mind, is whether we are able to master what Scott Adams calls the interface for reality. The interface for reality is possibly the most important concept that human beings have ever come up with, and it's referred to time and time again in many different historical contexts and in many different cultural contexts. In the Hindu and Buddhist tradition, it's known as Maya, literally the magic power with which a god can make human beings believe in what turns out to be an illusion. You'll often hear Buddhists talk about the world of forms, which really is our perceived reality. It's what the world seems like to us based on our limited sensory data, as opposed to Atman, which is consciousness, the all-knowing, unchanging, true base reality. And in the ancient Greek tradition, Plato uses the allegory of the caves to describe how we mortals are really only seeing the shadows of reality, and that most mortals are so captivated by these shadows that even if we had someone else point out the fact that this is not in fact reality, they're just shadows of reality, we are so captivated by them that we would deny that fact and we would fight them just to keep the illusion alive. And in Western science, uh, specifically in physics, scientists will differentiate between classical reality, which is what reality seems like for macro observers like ourselves, and quantum reality, which is closer to the measurable scientific truth, but which we don't really have direct access to. And a lot of the weirdness in quantum physics can be summarized by the quote, we are not classical beings having a quantum experience, we are quantum beings having a classical experience. And just finally, I'll say that, you know, Alan Watts jokes that we already know there are wavelengths beyond that which our eyes can see and beyond which our ears can hear, but which are within the reach of our scientific instruments. Lord only knows what's beyond the reach of our scientific instruments and in directions we've never thought of. So really the first step in mastering the interface to reality is realizing that reality is extremely subjective. There's no one person who has the full picture. It's not even close to that. A good way to think about this is that you can imagine different filters on reality. So imagine you put on special glasses and it allows you to see the world through the eyes of an economist, a scientist, a politician, a preacher, a military officer, a refugee, a Republican, a Democrat, a man, a woman, a child, an adult, a girlfriend, a father, a son, a student, a guru. These are all different filters on reality. And the most important thing to notice is that none of these filters is more right than any other filter. They all are a piece of the puzzle that adds up to create our collective reality. It's a lot like Einstein's theory of relativity. Space, time, and reality are all relative depending on the observer who's experiencing their particular slice of reality. And once we consider other species besides humans, it gets even more wonky because different species experience time at different speeds. If you think of a mouse, a mouse's heart beats 10x faster than any 
human heart. Therefore, a minute in human time is something like 10 minutes in mouse time. They're moving at a faster frame rate in, in reality than we are. And with something with insects like flies, it's even more extreme. If you've ever noticed that if you try to swat a fly with your hand, you're always going to miss. It'll move out of the way, way before your hand has actually hit the fly. And the reason is that from the fly's perspective, you're moving in slow motion. Your hand is slowly going towards it, whereas it can respond immediately and get out of the way. Sort of like how, from our perspective, a tree is growing in slow motion, and we can only even notice that a tree is growing if we do a time lapse over many successive days. Okay, so now that we recognize that no one is more right than anyone else, no one filter on reality is more right than any, any other filter, and that time and reality is a relative experience, now we can get past the tribalism. We can get past the identity politics that often have people constrained to a low dimensional way of thinking. And we can move on to explore what are the different buttons on the interface to reality? And how can you master each of these buttons so that you can create the future that you want to create for yourself? We're gonna discuss that right after this quick ad break. Now let's get into the various buttons on the interface for reality. One of the most important buttons is a concept known as the selfish gene, which Richard Dawkins talks about in his book of the same title. And this is the notion that the drive to survive and reproduce is probably the number one motivator for almost all human behavior at almost all times. You know, this is something we know we've heard about in biology class, but if you really realize this in your day-to-day -day life, it will help you understand people's motivations on a much deeper level. You know, it's really obvious when you see on the lower end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where someone doesn't have enough food to survive for their family and they'll go out and they'll steal food. Maybe they'll even kill someone else or resort to cannibalism. It's very easy to recognize the drive to survive and reproduce in those scenarios. It's, it's less clear when you think about someone who's a billionaire, like let's say Jeff Bezos, like why does he still get up and work super hard every day? You know, it may not directly only be his desire to survive and reproduce, but you have to recognize the frame that the more wealthy and powerful someone is, the greater selection of potential mates they have, and also the greater ability for them to continue surviving. You know, Jeff Bezos can pay for the best possible doctors in the world for medical treatment. He has access to new gene therapy and stem cell therapy and all these different medical treatments that you simply don't have access to unless you're a billionaire. So the, the drive to survive and reproduce may be the single greatest motivating factor for any human being. So it's important to recognize that. Another important button to reality is summarized by the concept of game recognize game. So, you know, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah had this really cool poster on this billboard that said, Game Recognize Game. And it was essentially saying the game of The Daily Show, which is to make fun of politicians and get at the truth and expose some ways that we would perhaps hope that the po political world didn't operate. That's the game The Daily Show is playing. The game that politicians are playing is quite different. It's essentially a game of selling influence 
and purporting to be someone who's for the people while you benefit yourself and your family and those close to you through political dealings. So this concept of game recognized game is so crucial for understanding reality because in game theory, we know that some people are cooperators, other people are defectors, and depending on the game that you're playing, you have different incentives to cooperate with someone or to defect with someone. So if you have a one-off game, like let's say you're remodeling your home, this is something you probably are only gonna do once every 10 years, and it's unlikely you'll use the same company to remodel it the second time. So you're quite likely to get screwed over because it's a one-off game. Whereas if you have an iterative game, like you say, hey, you know, I'd like to remodel my home, but you know, let's just start with the garage, and then if that goes well, then we'll do the kitchen. And by the way, I have other neighbors who are also looking to remodel their home, so if this goes well, you know, I'll refer you to the neighbors. This turns it into an iterative game, and now the incentives are for the other person to cooperate so they can get those, those additional rewards in the future. So it's important to recognize the game that everyone is playing and recognize the incentives of the game and try to create an iterative scenario so that cooperation is what people are motivated to do. Another important concept for mastering the interface to reality is a talent stack. So your talent stack are the different talents that you have, which you can stack on top of one another. It's unlikely that you're gonna be the best basketball player in the world, but you might be someone who's the best basketball player slash negotiator, and then maybe you can help basketball players negotiate their salary and you fit into that niche and that's what you become the best at. So from a statistical perspective, it's far more likely that you can be the best in the world at something if you are the center of two or three or more concentric circles of talents rather than just focusing on one talent. And this is relevant for viewing the world through filters of reality, which we already discussed, because if you only view the world through one filter, it's easy for you to have lots of blind spots and you could potentially get screwed over because you're not seeing the world from all the various lenses. Whereas if you see the world for all of its different filters and you have some experience viewing the world through each of those filters, then you're more likely to succeed in the long run and you're, you're less likely to get screwed over. So if you can already see the world through the eyes of an accountant, you know, through the eyes of personal finance, through the eyes of negotiating and business, then even if you're an artist, which doesn't seem to be that related to any of those skills, you're more likely to succeed as an artist. And there are some skills that are important no matter what you do. So design skills are important, like knowing how to create a clean professional presentation. Public speaking is always important. Persuasion is always important. And written communication and storytelling. These are human skills that are important no matter what you do. So in summary, it's important to have a talent stack where you have multiple very different talents so you can be the best in the world at that combination of talents and then you also want to go super deep into one area. People often ask Tim Ferriss whether he recommends they be a generalist or a specialist in their careers and he always says you should be a specialized generalist. So you have lots of different areas of expertise and then you have one area that you know a ton. Curiosity is another major driver of human behavior. 
people are really curious. Conscious beings are really curious. And you can use that curiosity to get people to do what you want them to do. So every time, as an example, that we invite a guest onto Hence the Future, we leverage the curiosity principle. And here's what we do. First, we mention what it is we love about the other person and their work and their unique perspective. We start by telling them why we like them and why we feel that their viewpoint is important to hear. Then we go into the value proposition of why it makes sense for them to come on our podcast. We'll talk about how our listeners would seriously benefit from hearing their unique perspective. And finally, we have a super low friction, curiosity-driven call to action. We say, if you're at all interested, let us know your email and we'll send you all the details. So this way, there's a super low bar. All someone has to do is give over their email, which doesn't really cost anything to them. And they're curious to see what the details are. And then once they've already invested themselves in thinking about, hmm, I wonder if I should come on this podcast and I wonder what the details are and what we'll discuss, they've already warmed up to the idea and they're far more likely to then come on the podcast as a guest. So whatever you're doing in life, if you can add a little bit of curiosity where you don't give someone all the answers right away, then that's a really powerful lever that you can pull on the interface to reality. Another important lever is the power of positive thinking, which was popularized by Norman Vincent Peale in his book of the same name. And the concept here is that you are what you think. If you fill your head with lots of negative thoughts and violent movies and things of that nature, you will create negative thought patterns that will attract a negative reality. Whereas if you only think positive thoughts and you're grateful for what you have in life and you take time each day to remind yourself that you are really lucky and you do have so many good things working for you in life, then you're more likely to attract a positive outcome. So there's one example in this book where a salesman is having a really tough time meeting his sales quota. And he starts to get super anxious about whether he'll be able to make enough sales, if he's maybe not as good at his job as he used to be. And his clients could sense his anxiety. They could sense that he wasn't confident on the phone. And so they didn't bite on his sales propositions and he could not meet quota. But then he had a total change. He started using positive affirmations before he made every sales call. And he would repeat things in the Bible that really resonated with him. He would say things like, if God is for us, who can be against us? And all things are possible through Christ who strengthens me. After he repeated those positive affirmations, he was able to close 85% of all of his sales and did phenomenally well. So you don't have to use quotes from the Bible. It really doesn't matter where the quote come from, comes from. The important thing is that it's a positive feeling that gives you confidence and makes you feel like all things are possible and you can achieve success. If you have that mindset, you will succeed at a far greater rate than if you have negative thoughts and are constantly second-guessing yourself. Here's another concept I love. Winning even if you fail. The notion here is that if you do something that you enjoy so much for its own sake or that you feel is so important as a cause that you would be willing to do it even if you couldn't make any money doing it, then you'll win even if you fail. 
Even if you don't make money, it's still a win because you have done something worthwhile with your time. I leverage this principle all the time when I think about weighing the workload between stuff I do on my own, like my podcast, and stuff I do for clients, which is through my ad agency, Noble Growth. And my mindset is that I love doing the podcast for its own sake. If there were zero listeners, I would still put out this podcast because I enjoy doing it and I find that it's a useful way for me to organize my thoughts and really make sense of reality and the future as it's always changing. So whenever my client workload gets a little bit lighter, I don't get anxious and think, oh no, I have a little bit less money per month than I used to have. Instead, I see the bright side of, oh, I have a little bit extra time now that I can invest in my podcast. So really, there's no way I can lose. Like Even if all my clients left me tomorrow, I would see it as a benefit where, oh, I can seriously focus on my podcast now. And who knows what the potential returns for that will be. You know, how many interesting people I'll get to meet as guests. Maybe this would grow, you know, even greater someday, which it has been growing at a pretty great rate. So there's really no way I can lose. And my clients in my ad agency can sense that I have this confidence and that there are many ways that I enjoy spending my time. So because of that, I tend not to lose clients and I end up having a really strong business that then feeds into the podcast and allows me to have the best of all worlds. So my advice would be, if you can find something that you would do, even if you couldn't make money, that's the thing you'll probably end up making the most money doing. Thinking about systems as opposed to goals is another great lever on the interface for reality. So a lot of people focus on goals. If you're trying to get fit, maybe you'll have the goal of, I want to lose 10 pounds by summer. This creates a binary situation where either you did succeed in losing 10 pounds by summer, or you didn't succeed in losing 10 pounds by summer. And even if you succeed, you might gain the 10 pounds right back because you achieved your goal and there's nothing to really change your behavior day in, day out beyond having achieved that goal. So if instead you focus on your system of, okay, what do I do after dinner when I'm still hungry for something sweet? Maybe instead of having ice cream or cookies, you have a nice tangerine or some other sort of fruit that's healthier. If you build systems in this way, then your whole life will be more optimized on an ongoing basis, not just for some short period of time. So this is not only for fitness, obviously, but for your workforce. Like, for instance, I've noticed that my to-do lists are really important for de deciding how I spend each day. And over time, my to-do list has evolved. It's broken down now by week, and within week, it's broken down by client. So I always make sure every client is getting what they need every week. And it's also broken down by day, so I know what's the most important task every day. So my time management is always getting better because I focus on the system of how I manage my time and how I decide what I need to do at each moment rather than the goal of, oh, I want my agency to you know, get to this level of revenue by the end of 2020. So if you can focus on systems and optimizing those systems as opposed to goals, then you will be on the right path for achieving your ideal version of reality. The power of positive association 
is another important button on the interface of reality. You only want positive words and concepts associated with your personal brand. That's why it's not a good idea to have a foul mouth where you're always swearing and saying outlandish negative things because that will rub off on you and people will start to associate those foul and negative things with you. So think of someone at work, if you have a colleague who's always coming to you with problems, you might start to actually despise that person, even if the problems have nothing to do with them and they're just company problems that this person happens to be bringing to you. On the other hand, if there's someone at work who's always smiling and they always give you nice compliments, then you'll start to really like that person, even if they're not really contributing anything to the company. And it's the same for running a business. So think about how big of a hit Chick-fil-A took when their CEO had some anti-gay comments. Now people think of the Chick-fil-A brand as being homophobic. You don't want that to rub off on your brand. That's why savvy CEOs and savvy politicians will make an effort to only use positive words. And they'll use those words again and again, using simplicity, repetition, and the power of positive association to persuade you. You know, think about Trump. You know, whatever you think about Trump, whatever your opinion is, he is a master of the power of positive association. You'll always hear him using words like win, win big, win big league, make America great, build the wall. Like these are all super clear, simple, positive words that Trump repeats over and over again. So you start to associate greatness and America and winning with Trump himself. On the other hand, you have someone like Carly Fiorina, who when she was running for president as a Republican, she kept talking about dead babies. And her strategy was she wanted to position herself as the most pro-life candidate, which that strategy probably sounded good on paper. You know, that's an important issue. She could really differentiate herself. She could win a lot of the votes of people who, for them, that issue is one of the most important issues. But on just a 3D persuasion level, people started to associate dead babies with Carly Fiorina, which is about the worst word association you can have for a political candidate's personal brand. And, you know, she did not do well. So don't only think about the meaning of the words or the strategy in an intellectual way. Think about really the, you know, base level reptilian reaction of how certain words and concepts make you feel and then try to only use positive words and concepts in relation to your personal brand or your business or your campaign for office or whatever it may be. Another great negotiating principle is the concept of pacing and leading. So before you can get someone to do what you want, first you have to pace them. What this means is you find out what state of mind the other person is in and you match it. So imagine you walk into a conference room where you have a meeting with someone and the other person is clearly tired, maybe they're a bit frustrated and agitated. It's not a good move to be super enthusiastic and energetic right out of the gates. It's important instead to pace the other person, match the sort of demeanor that they have, get onto their energy level, onto their wavelength and let them start the conversation. Ask them like, you know, hey, how's it going? Let them speak a little bit, get a sense for where their head is at. And then once you can sense that they are comfortable with you and your presence, and they have the feeling of, okay, this person's sort of in the same mindset as me, 
we're both viewing the world from a very similar perspective, that's when you can lead them. But it's important that you start with pacing and then you lead. So many people fail to do this because they don't think it's important to listen. Like whenever I have a new potential client for my ad agency, I always start by just asking them, in your wildest dreams, what would you envision for the future? What do you want your business to achieve? And you let them lead. You let them say everything, all of their hopes and dreams. Then you can lead them and say, okay, I've recognized your hopes and dreams. Here's how I can help lead you into that ideal future scenario. So remember, all you need to do is start by pacing the person, matching their wavelength, and then lead. So don't just try to lead right out of the gates. The contrast principle is another super powerful persuasion tactic. And this is because everything is relative. So who's to say what's expensive, what's cheap, what's a good deal, what's a bad deal, unless you compare it to some something else. So for instance, I use this all the time with Noble Growth. Whenever we have a new potential client, they'll ask, you know, how much is it for you guys to build a website for us? And rather than just saying our price, which isn't really anchored to anything, and they might think, oh, maybe it's too expensive, but they really have no way to know, is this a good deal? Is it a bad deal? You start by anchoring it with what the typical price is that most brands would have to pay to get a big agency to build a website for them. So we'll say that you know, a typical agency will charge you five to $10,000 to build a website like this, Whereas we only charge $800 a week for several weeks, depending on you know, the scope of the project. So by doing this, we've anchored them with a price that is an honest price of what they might get from other agencies. And then we compare that and contrast that with the price that we would charge them, which is much more affordable and you know, it's on a weekly basis. And that way they can already see that they're getting a good deal on it. If you don't anchor your offering and contrast it to something else, there's no way for the other person to know whether they're getting a good deal or a bad deal. The high ground maneuver is super effective, especially if you find yourself in a situation where you need to extract yourself from the nitty gritty problems and issues and take a high ground position so that you can bring other people to see the big picture. An example is Governor Andrew Cuomo Recently, he was asked by reporters, you know, what would you say to all the NYC businesses that have been closed and are really struggling because of the lockdown that you ordered? And rather than getting into that nitty gritty details, Governor Cuomo said, look, we cannot put a price on human life. So he was taking the high ground of, look, I'm not going to get into all the nitty gritty of businesses and, you know, the struggles they're going through. We recognize those struggles, but look. The important thing here is saving lives. So he took the high ground. And whatever you think of that argument, I'm not saying he's right or wrong or whether the economy should or shouldn't be closed. I have my own views on that. But the high ground maneuver is a super smart move for extracting yourself from any topic that you just rather not get into. And you'll see lots of savvy politicians do this. They're probably the biggest experts, but you'll also see business people do it. If, for instance, let's say you're pitching a VC and the VC is asking all these nitty gritty questions about your numbers, you can say like, look, we are creating a new reality. We are helping people and businesses achieve their dreams 
and we may not have all the answers right now, but we know where we're heading and we're firing on all cylinders to get there. Like you can use that high ground maneuver and bring people up to the big picture and it almost really never fails because the other person has to then meet you at that higher plane and oftentimes it's a lot easier to talk about the world and the reality you'd like to experience rather than like the nitty gritty details and questions that may be a trap. So use the high ground maneuver whenever you find yourself in trouble. Now this is the last button on the interface to reality that we'll discuss today. And in some ways it's the most important. It is the following. All the spoils go to the adventurous types. Now, what this means is that you shouldn't be too conservative with your life. So many people live their whole life waiting for something big to happen to them and they never take the initiative to take risks themselves. They stay at the same company for years, you know, they always thought about starting their own shop, but it never quite felt safe or the right time to do so. Maybe they've never traveled outside their home country and they were waiting for, you know, their kids to be out of college or they, they waited until they have enough money saved up. And there are so many people that are putting off living their lives and they're afraid to take risks and to create the future that they want for themselves. Now, this may seem like a smart move until you realize that all the spoils in life do tend to go to the adventurous types. The Roman poet Virgil, who wrote the Aeneid and is one of my favorite Roman poets, he wrote that they conquer who believe they can. And elsewhere he wrote, fortune favors the bold. So think of any role model you have in your own life. Think about Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or George Washington or Alexander the Great or any figure that you really admire. Did they wait for the right opportunity to present itself and for everyone else to say, okay, yes, this is the right thing, you should do it, and sort of wait until there was consensus? No, they literally created the reality that they wanted by their sh sheerly willing it into existence. So this is the attitude you have to have if you're going to achieve something truly great in the world. People talk about Steve Jobs' reality distortion field, and that was basically, he had this vision of how the world should be, and he was so confident in that vision that literally the whole world adjusted to match his vision. So don't underestimate your ability to visualize a new future and make it a reality. And don't hesitate to take risks if you feel deep within yourself that it is the right move for you to do at any given moment. Now let's briefly get into the future scenarios. Let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario in navigating the future is that you get in your own way, that you become your own worst enemy, that you let negative thought patterns control you and you cannot see the shadows for what they are. In the worst case, you either have a total external locus of control, meaning you think life happens to you, you think you're unlucky, you think you got a poor lot in life, and because of that, you never really try to change your own reality. Or on the other side, you're so hard on yourself and you feel that everything you've done is your fault 
that you don't allow any sort of forgiveness that you would extend to others to yourself and you're just far too hard on yourself. So in the worst case, you prevent yourself from seeing the interface to reality and from actually pushing the buttons and pulling the levers on the interface to reality because you're so overcome by negative thought patterns and by getting in your own way. Let's talk about the best case scenario. Best case scenario. In the best case, you make data-driven decisions and you tap into your own intuition in order to bring together the best of all worlds and master the interface to reality so you can create the future that you want for yourself. If you're not making data-driven decisions, then you're just really operating randomly or you're just guessing. So it's important to measure what you're achieving in life and whether you're getting what you want out of life. And the only way you can really do that is to look inward and think, am I happy with the way things are? Am I happy with my job, with my relationships? Is there some change I need to make? And only you can answer that for yourself. And then aside from making data-driven decisions, it's important that you tap into the power of emergence, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And essentially that is, if you can sense that there are certain opportunities in the economy, in human society, some important problems that aren't being solved, some things that you really enjoy doing that maybe a lot of other people aren't as interested in, then you have found your role in society. And there's probably something out there in life that's really just perfectly made for you. And you need to use your intuition and be a little bit bold with some risks that you take and some shots on goal that you shoot that you can achieve that reality. So in the best case, you leverage the both of data-driven decisions and tapping into your own intuition and seeing the interface to reality for what it is and then systematically mastering each of these buttons so that you're able to create the future that you desire. Lastly, let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. In the most likely scenario, you alternate between the worst case and the best case, meaning you have times where you really leverage the power of positive thinking you really see reality and maya and the world of forms and all its limitations for what it is. And so you're able to play the game in an intelligent way where you make certain changes and you take certain risks to get closer to what you want. And you measure your systems, you see your performance, you recognize how happy you are with your current state in life, and you constantly optimize your situation to get to where you want to go. You alternate between that and letting yourself be overcome by negative thought patterns. And look, we all have it. Like I have days where I just wake up feeling really depressed and there's not really a particular reason why I feel depressed, but it's just an off day. It's like you get off on the wrong side of the bed and you can never perhaps eliminate all of those days completely. But if you recognize those days for what they are, which is one little downslope in a very bumpy roller coaster of life, then you're able to almost take the high ground maneuver with your own view on life. And, you know, this is something that a lot of teenagers have problems with because you haven't had a long enough life to realize that life has hills and valleys 
it gets better, it gets worse, it gets better again. And so you see, you have something happen like your boyfriend breaks up with you, your girlfriend breaks up with you, and it feels like a life shattering event. You cannot imagine a new future where you're happy without that person or whatever, whatever it is that happened to you. But if you take a higher dimensional view of your life and you realize that you can only have good if you also have bad by the contrast principle, then you can sort of just enjoy the ride and you don't become as attached to any particular outcome. You're more just happy to be experiencing life moment to moment. So in closing, I would ask that you consider the interface to reality. You try to recognize it, you know, game, recognize game, try to see the games people are playing, try to see what strategies tend to be most effective for people achieving happiness and take some risks so that you can make that reality happen in your own life. Now I'll leave you with a final quote which was in Scott Adams' episode where someone convinced him to take a deeper look at the interface to reality. And here's what they said that convinced him to really give it a try. It doesn't cost you anything, and if it works, you'll be able to rewrite reality. Thank you for listening. I wish you the very best, and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.